Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki Dillo Roshi, the guiding teacher at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. If you are enjoying these talks and you would like to dive deeper into the topics discussed by Zenki Roshi in this podcast, consider becoming a premium subscriber. This will give you access to recorded Q&A sessions related to each talk, as well as previously unreleased talks from our intensives. Becoming a premium subscriber helps to support the continuation of the podcast and Zanki Roshi's teachings. Learn more about it by clicking the link in the show notes. As always, you're welcome to join us live for these Dharma Talks. You can join us online via Zoom or in person. You can find a link to our website with the Dharma Talk schedule and more information also in the show notes. Now here's Zanki Roshi. Good morning. Can you all hear me on Zoom as well? Okay. <laughs> uh, this talk is part of the course that's happening on Compassionate Action. And it's also, uh, in my feeling at least, part of the uh Precepts initiation ceremony that will happen tomorrow, where six uh, members of the Sangha are taking the precepts. And so I thought it would be good to open it up to everyone. So it's, uh, on the one hand, a continuation of a conversation that some of us are already having. And... Uh, it's uh, also the context for this ceremony tomorrow. Um, you know, I'm doubtful about everything. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I find it quite useful, you know, that there's like... Um, doubt just doesn't go away. And yet we find some way of existing in the world uh, with this body this crazy mind in a society that is, um, you know, with other people, difficult to live with, wonderful to live with, too. You know, we find a way. So, I'm doubtful about Buddhism. You know, why these forms? Why exactly like this? Why not some other way? Um... Right, so, but if we want to make some kind of sense, you know, I, there's some inheritance that I have of like this practice. It has um, proven itself useful and valid through my own uh, practice and experience. So I feel also a certain confidence to talk about it, take it, pass it on, you know, like that. So this ceremony is. Um, that we'll do tomorrow is inherited over time. It's like you, what are the basic actions that are taken? It's like a commitment to uh, the precepts, common sense, ethical guide, <laughs> guidelines, which I want to talk about a bit. And also an entering into the lineage teaching of, like I just said, not with some dogmatism, but with a respectful um with respect for its um, usefulness and validity, and also with some reasonable doubt that things can evolve further and become different and so forth. So one, one thing for me that's notoriously difficult to um, explore and think about is ethics. And this, these precepts that we'll be talking about, uh, and some of you will receive and commit to, are um, a way to express an ethical attitude. Mm. Ethics, you know, is about how we treat each other, treat each other, and it's about if you 
think about it theoretically, it's about distinguishing between good and evil, between um, beneficial and harmful. But already there, you know, it's like, it's just a morass from a, from a theoretical point of view. I recently um, read someone who's, who says, you know, is a kind of a critique of Western Buddhism, or anyway, that's good enough to say. And uh, this person says, there's no ethics in Buddhism that um, holds up to 21st century Western standards of ethics. It's like this ancient collection of rules. Like, there's like a Sangha that came together around Shakyamuni Buddha, supposedly, and then they lived and interacted, and then, you know, people did stuff that wasn't so good for the community. So you made up some, you wrote down some rules, and then soon enough, there were lots of rules, like lots. <clears throat> It's just pragmatic, you know, when a, when a problem occurs, you make a rule about how to uh, not have that problem reoccur. But philosophically speaking, when you think about a philosophy of ethics, you know, you want to have some uh, principles that you can rely on. And in a way, when you look at the precepts, these rules of behavior, you want to dig a little deeper and say, like, what are the principles behind that? What can we really rely on? And um, that's where the trouble begins. It's difficult to do. You know, it takes, it takes something like Immanuel Kant's uh, categorical imperative. You know, it goes something like this. Um, act in a way so that the principle that underlies your action can become a universal rule. That's pretty profound. Don't engage in action that is based on some principle that couldn't apply to everyone or in all situations. For, for example, you know, if you lie, which we know lies are problematic because they erode trust between people. So if you take the principle that underlies lies, which is save your own ass, <laughs> protect, protect yourself by concealing the truth, or gaining some advantage by saying that something is true which isn't true and trick people into believing something, if you take that principle and you make it a universal rule, then society doesn't work. You know, It, it just collapses. <clears throat> but, you know, as I was taught in high school, if you uh, look into a universalist ethics like Kant's, you know, I grew up in Germany, so you get an example, like you live in Nazi Germany and you're hiding uh, a family of Jews in your basement and the secret police comes knock at your door and says, like, are you hiding Jews in your basement? And then you apply Kant's universal or categorical imperative and you say the truth and says, yes, I'm hiding Jews in my basement. Would that be ethical action? Well, according to Kant, you, you can't lie. But it's clear to us, we want to lie in that situation. We need to lie. So, it's messy, right? So you see? And, and uh, on top of it, you know, what is good and evil, what is beneficial and harmful, varies um, according to context and situation and... Uh, was different at different times in history. So universalism breaks down. 
shucks. <laughs> uh, re- so the alternative to universalism, philosophically speaking, is relativism, which is um, moral principles and uh, rules of conduct and ethics are culture bound. They are, you know, different groups of people make different kinds of rules. You know, empirically speaking, that's just the fact. It's just a fact. But it's not very satisfying. Because with a relativist take approach to ethics, you end up in a world where, you know, groups can just make up their own rules. And it's like, you know, well, we think this is fine, so then you um, have to condone that. I mean, the ethical uh, rules of Nazi Germany, do we want to just say, well, that's what these people decided, or, you know, uh, some kind of uh, code of conduct in a violent gang, you know, or the mafia. In fact, it's true that different ethical rules apply there, but we want some kind of universalism, I hope, to be able to say that this isn't this isn't right. I think this shows up in an interesting way every time a Western politician. Uh, journeys to China and just like some expectations build up in the in our media that human rights violations need to be pointed out to the government of China. Anyway, I'm just making an example, it could be some other country that we think is less ethical than ourselves. And um you know it's always problematic. You want to have good relations with China, you depend on the trade, and the Chinese ritualistically just reject this kind of stuff, right? It's just like, why do you lecture us on ethics? We have our own, we have our own way of doing things. Leave us alone. <clears throat> we don't point out how you are violating human rights too, which human rights definitely get violated in the West. <clears throat> So what do you do? You know, from a relativistic point of view, you would say, like, you know, just go to China and don't talk about human rights. It's not necessary. They have their own affairs. But, you know, you could break it down and say, like, then nobody should ever say anything about someone else because it's <laughs> these are my own affairs. Like, what do you tell me about, you know, how I should behave? I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm not certain about any of these things, but my intuition, my, let's say my ethical sensibility tells me that it would be wise to, if I'm imagining myself being this envoy to China of a Western government, um, it would be wise to uh, practice what I would call invitational rhetoric. You continue to invite people into the framework of human rights. But before you do that, you practice um, um, clarity about your own behavior. You understand that human rights is an aspirational framework that we are adopting in this country and other Western democracies. And um, those, um, this aspirational framework, uh, from our point of view, my point of view, makes sense. And we can invite others into that framework. So, in a way, it's like, I don't have to give up a sort of universal aspiration, but... It's not something to uh, impose on other people as the truth about 
ethical behavior. But then it becomes a kind of um, never-ending path and negotiation and navigation of uh, uncertain territory. It's, it's not satisfying for someone who wants to ground this in, you know, rationality or universal principle. It feels, it feels like a groundlessness that should be avoided. So I'm, I, I have a sense that, yeah, there isn't really a fully explicated ethics of Buddhism that works in the 21st century. Someone can point me to it, it would be great. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just not really aware of it. But we have these precepts. And um, in the Zen tradition, they are, you know, from like a long, long catalog of, you know, all kinds of rules. It's boiled down to 16 so-called bodhisattva precepts. A bodhisattva is someone who's committed to the liberation of all beings from suffering. That's an, that in itself is a really interesting orientation. It's like the basis of our uh, practice is um, the intent to end and liberate from suffering. In my view, it's a very pragmatic orientation. It's more pragmatic than theoretical. There's not like one set of approaches that um, are, can be derived from this orientation. There's lots of things, and we need to discern what applies from situation to situation. So it's situational and pragmatic, and it may not satisfy everybody's theoretical need for certainty, but nonetheless, it's uh, it's it's an orientation which is a lot clear orientation. So the um, bodhisattva precepts is to take refuge in the Buddha, to take refuge in the Dharma, and to take refuge in the Sangha, the three refuges. Now, we could give this a more Buddhist interpretation, but I also like, just like, the Buddha is the dimension of, it's like first-person dimension. It's, or taking refuge in the Buddha is your commitment to awakening, your commitment to liberation from suffering. The Buddha is, is a good example. And what, what matters is our own commitment to that path. So taking refuge in the Buddha means to, if you recite those refuges, it's like to recommit to this path of awakening and liberation. And you do it through your own through the study of your own aliveness and experience. And taking refuge in the Dharma, um, the Dharma, Dharma has lots of meanings, but let's say uh, the teaching here and the path to implement that teaching. What is this teaching? You know, from my point of view, if we have an open view about it, it's like it's everything that contributes to liberation from suffering. Yes, traditional Buddhist teachings, but contemporary teachings that are non-Buddhist as well. So Dharma can evolve. And it does have, that's interesting to me too, it does have a certain universal aspiration. When the Buddha teaches that the cause of suffering is, um, in my language, resistance grasping and 
delusion, greed, hate, and delusion, based on resistance and grasping and, you know, I don't know. <laughs> what is delusion? It's uh, confusing concepts with reality. Taking stories to be what actually is the case. <laughs> there could be other definitions, but I'm giving this now. Um, that's universal. This, I mean, in principle, this is this idea is universal. It applies to, for to everyone, everywhere. That suffering is caused by greed, hate, and delusion. <laughs> Prove me wrong, you know? Let's find examples where that's not true. Then we can, you know, drill a hole in this universalism. But, you know, it's pretty good. <laughs> so, committed... We, we, in taking refuge in the Dharma, we're committing to um, listening carefully to the teaching teachings that are already existing uh, around uh, the cause of suffering and how to end suffering, and um, and also to a commitment to keep evolving those teachings and how they apply here and now, in our situation, in our times. And refuge in the Sangha is the social dimension of uh, how to live with others. We really don't see each other, uh, we really don't see ourselves very well without others. <laughs> you know? First of all, we're really dependent on others, but even if you wanted to make a study of yourself independent from others, it's not, it's not, it's not very successful, I think. You know, you all know the blind spot idea, but it's like, it's hard to see yourself. Um, you, you need to, we need interaction to see ourselves. And to, to make progress in our, you know, our own growing up and maturing. <clears throat> then there are the three purifying precepts of um, doing good, not doing harm and living for the benefit of all beings. I'm always stunned by this. It's like by the simplicity of this. It's just stunning. And if you start to think about it, it's in incomprehensible, you know, because if you had to, like, write an essay about what's good and what's harm, then you have the you know, then you have this endless discourse about ethics that is like, you know, it's incomprehensibly large. There's no end to that. And yet, there is a kind of moral sensibility that is, can be so clear in your experience about what is good and what is harmful, and you don't have to explain it. Right? So it's both. It's actually really difficult to pin down, and at the same time, it's extremely clear and precise. Now, personally, I think that ethics are grounded in what we have to call sensitivity or a sensibility or a word that I like to use. It's, it's grounded in a felt sense. It's not grounded in principle. <clears throat> now, one quality of a felt sense that I, you know, it's endlessly fascinating to me, is that a felt sense is both vague and precise at the same time. Okay, so let's say 
how can I, I have to make up an some kind of example, but it's sort of a very general example. You are in a situation and you need to act. You need to do something. It could be anything really, like you have to go left or you have to go right. I, I'm just like randomly, I'm recalling the situation. I was at the Berlin airport once, and it's like now it was a day where things were kind of warm and then they were just cold. Like the cold came in and froze everything at the airport. So nothing worked. And there were like thousands of people, including myself, stranded at the Berlin airport. Everyone's jam-packed, you know, and I waited for eight hours to get, uh, to present my ticket and get a different ticket. Eight hours, stand, like I was so grateful for Sashin practice. It's like without Sashin practice, I would have gone crazy, like some people around me, you know, just, there's like a shortage of food, there's no water, your feet start to hurt, like you sit on your baggage, you know, so I'm inching forward eight hours right inching forward to the counter and then this guy who looked to me like some african king he he's like he had these regal clothes and he had this queen by his side and he came in without having been in line like me for eight hours and he just cut in front of me and talk to the clerk. I mean, actually not directly in front of me. There was one other guy between me and this person who just sort of appeared and had this like uncanny confidence, like a king, of like, of course, I'm just going to the counter. It was stunning. So anyway, I'm digress. It's just a story. But I'm like, um, it feels like you have to do something. You have to say, hey, buddy, <coughs> there's a long line and you can wait for eight hours too, or you just let it happen, I guess. You know, maybe there are other options, but those came to mind, those two. <coughs> and it was clear to me that I wouldn't do anything. I would just let it happen. But the guy in front of me, right, he made the other choice and he confronted this person. I thought, like, oh, interesting. You have to make a decision. You know, what's right or wrong? I don't know. The guy in front of me was very angry. But it didn't help. I think if you have a kingly demeanor, <laughs> you just get away with anything. You just do it. <laughs> I guess... <clears throat> I really think he was a he was a king. Um, it does, it's not anyway. So I have to stop. <clears throat> I want to talk about the felt sense. So it's the felt sense is vague and precise at the same time. In other words, what you couldn't explain all the ramifications of what you feel in your felt sense that lead to your action as this or that. But when you do the action, the felt sense is extremely precise in telling you whether that action is appropriate or not. I don't mean that in an objective sense. I mean that in a very subjective sense of whether you meet your own standard of rightness in the in the situation or not. It's a little bit like if you have something to say and you articulate it, like I'm engaged in that kind of activity right now, right? And I'm speaking from a felt sense. I know that the words that I'm letting come or that are coming mysteriously to express what I want to say, whether they are meeting my standard of uh, conveying the meaning that I have in mind. It's like, it's pretty precise because if I fail to say what I mean, 
I have to say it again. Like, I just noticed I, I want to make a point and there's time constraints for my talk. I can't keep talking about this situation at the airport, you know. <laughs> Although, I like the memory of it. It's precise in that way. But I couldn't explain why, necessarily. I can hint at it. And I think that's happening with ethical theory. You can start to douse out some principles, but it's not... You can never exhaust it in an explanatory way. But it's still there's still precision. And so, I think it's important to recognize how these how the felt sense is governing our ethical behavior and how the rules that we make up are secondary. They are derived from the felt sense and they are subject to revision. So in a, in a way, I think ethical education needs to be an, an education of sensitivity, of the capacity for resonance and for acting from a felt sense. Not... Uh, um, an education in uh, in setting up rules and following them to the letter. I I like a version of the three purifying precepts that says you know doing good is to do wholesome action and to. To not do harm is to not to to refrain from unwholesome action. There's something in the English word wholesome that is useful to me. It's like it's it's um, to refrain from unwholesome action is to refrain from sowing division, from setting up divisions that are too hard. Divisions between self and other, between in-group and out-group, between uh, self and world. When you, when you set up divisions that are too harsh, you violate wholesomeness. <laughs> now, we can also, and this is where it starts to get complicated philosophically again, but it's like, if you say, if you favor the whole over the part, you're also sowing division. Because now you make a division between the whole and the part, and you're saying the whole is more important than the part. If you want to be, you know, interestingly paradoxical, you'd say the whole is also just a part. You know, there are all the parts, and then there's the whole. So the whole is just one of the parts. So we need to care for the whole and for all the parts. Like you could say, oh, we need to, we need to care for the whole planet and for the sake of the whole planet, we need to kill some humans. Which logically makes sense, but is ethically not defensible. Because the parts make up the whole. So if you kill off the parts, you are also Violating something about the whole. Anyway, you get my point. It's divisions are everywhere. Divisions are always happening when you set up this and that and you want to identify with one side over the other. And that division and then identify, you divide and then you identify with the, with one side that with that, already you're going in the direction of unwholesome. And then there are the... So living for the benefit of all being, all beings, that allness is undividedness. That allness is undividedness. 
uh, you know, sometimes that's rendered as uh, I vow to, you know, purify, I vow to purify the mind. You know, purification sounds like you're getting rid of evil tendencies in yourself, or bad habits, and, you know, that there's some truth to that. But fundamentally, to purify the mind is to counteract the habit of, of making, of creating divisions and identifying with one side. To be, it's purifying the mind is to avoid one-sidedness. As much as possible, you know, it can't be avoided completely, I think. Just to be alive and preserving our own life is a certain kind of bias. <clears throat> and we almost have a ob biological obligation to do so. Again, not again, not in an absolute way, but mostly that's how we act. We uh, make sure that we preserve our own lives, which makes sense. Now, the ten grave precepts. I often say this, you know, it's like if you want to practice the precepts, know them. It's the first. <laughs> it's like just know them. Means you're able to recite them. I vow not to kill. I vow not to take what is not given. I vow not to misuse sexuality. I vow not to lie. I vow not to intoxicate body and mind. I vow not to, and keep working on these formulations, not to denigrate others. I vow not to elevate the self. I vow not to be possessive of anything. I vow not to harbor ill will, and I vow not to abuse the three treasures. This comes full circle. You vow not to abuse the three treasures. You treasure the path of awakening. You come back to the three refuges. You don't poo-poo the three treasures. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter, you know. I mean, it, it shows up. How does it show up? It shows up. It's like, oh, well, I'm kind of tired of like investigating myself and it's like you treasure the path of awakening you you remind yourself in a way how much it's it's giving you it could be little things you just know how it doesn't feel right it doesn't you don't feel as grounded you don't feel as clear and awake if you abandon your practice just even temporarily, you know, you travel, don't get to sit the way you used to, you observe what it, what happens. I um, find it useful to distinguish three levels of practice with the ten prohibitory precepts. You may have heard versions of this in different language or you have your own ideas, but the way I have formulated this for myself is that there's one layer that is pretty... Um, what, what, what word to use? kind of coarse and obvious. It's like the ten prohibitory precepts guard against self-centeredness. They're just like guarding against it. It's like, don't do this. Don't engage in killing that is unnecessary. Don't don't steal. Don't, you know, like the positive formulation I'm choosing for do not take what is not given. You know, practice contentment. <clears throat> Don't don't objectify people in your in your uh, sexual activity. <clears throat> don't treat them as a means to your own pleasure. You know that's self-centered. You know my pleasure is the most important thing. So it doesn't matter how I treat you. This is guarding against self-centeredness in this uh, dimension of our existence, or you know not to. 
lie. We already touched on that. Um, guarding against seeking advantage from um, not telling the truth. By harming the social fabric. Right? It's happening at the highest level of politics in our country. It's just, can we see it? It's, it's eroding the society. It's disgusting, actually. <clears throat> it's amazing that it just can continue. It's like, <laughs> what, what's happening? Okay, and then in the course that we have, some of us have been, um, the conversation that we've had in this course on compassion is, um, I brought up this idea that I, idea, I mean, it's not the, not the idea, but the, um, the phrasing that I have from my teacher, Baker Urshi, who uh, speaks of interindependence. Um, we thought about this last week and explored what that means and practice suggestions I gave and so forth. Mm. The precepts are a constant negotiation between independence, the preservation of self, the support of self, and interdependence, the uh, dependence on others. Now, to speak of interindependence, which is, you know, paradoxical or maybe too weird or... But it, it points to something. It's like you can't get away from those two perspectives of connection and inter independence. They're intertwined. And when you have a precept like, like not killing, in which this becomes very obvious, it's like we can't survive without killing. I, I just sort of imagine, you know, how do you live without killing? Yes, you can draw the line somewhere. You can refrain from killing animals, but you can't refrain from killing plants. I thought, like, what would it take to refrain from killing plants? It's like you have to live solely from fruits and seeds. And even then you would kill future life, you know, because that's contained in the seed or in the fruit. No, actually you participate because as you're defecating, you know, you're spreading the... <clears throat> okay, so seeds and fruits. I'm sorry, it, uh, it, it does work. But it's, you know, that's not really possible. No, it's a question, you know, is it even desirable to aspire to such purity? It's like, make yourself different from all other forms of life. Maybe it'd be better to be, be like other, like all other forms of life and acknowledge your dependency on other beings and be respectful of how their death is life-giving to you. Maybe that is a, that, maybe that's a, a, a deeper kind of decency than to aspire to some kind of moral superiority that, you know, pretends that it has clean hands. No living being has clean hands in this way because all living beings sustain their life on the basis of death of other beings. This is, I think it's just a biological fact. But again, you can prove me wrong, please. <clears throat> I mean that seriously. It's like we need to explore it in this way. What's true here? So then it's a constant, it, then not killing is actually a constant negotiation of interindependence, of, of respect for for what is life-giving in, in this, you know, vast network of, of, of interconnected uh, living beings and, 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 and sustaining your own life in the midst of that. 
I mean, so also if you have a precept like not denig, uh, I formulated now, not denigrating others. Sometimes it's, you know, not slander others or not speak, um, of the faults of others. It's like, is it possible to live a life without criticizing anyone ever? Not speaking of the faults of others. Is this even desirable? So when, then what is the precept about? Like, there is, there's also an ethical necessity to speak of the faults of others. So that's why I'm saying denigrating now, because we have to feel out this territory is like to not put them down unnecessarily, to not start disregarding them as also belonging. So there is a complexity there. The complexity is, in the felt sense, it shows up as a kind of vagueness. You cannot come down hard anywhere. It's like not killing at all. It doesn't work, right? Uh, but to just kill without concern for others doesn't work. It's this negotiation of interindependence. It's, all, it's present in all the precepts, always. And we can count on encountering ethical dilemmas in all those fields. I also think the list of 10 isn't complete, you know, there could be others, but it's it's a good list, you know. One of the breakthroughs for me in practicing with uh, um, precepts was to recognize that when, when I, I mean, I was taught this, that um, Suzuki Rashi supposedly said, you know, it's like when you when you break the precepts, you lose energy. When you keep the precepts, you gain energy or you maintain energy. What does energy mean? It's like it's harming your own sense of aliveness when you lose energy. It's like it's actually deflating to break the precepts. But when I recognize this, that this is true, this is, then there's a new dimension. It's not like Practicing the, with the precepts is like following rules and being a good person and standing, you know, and, and, uh, I don't know, aspiring to some kind of moral, um, admirability or something. It's, it's about recognizing in yourself, in your own experience, how violating the precepts is harming your own sense of aliveness. If that makes any sense. Then it's not about I should do this, it's about I want to do this. I, I, or I don't want to do this in order to not harm my own sense of aliveness. But the truth is, you know, greed, hate, and delusion lead us, self-centeredness lead us to violate our own sense of aliveness. Actually, just disregard subtle feelings we have of that tell us not to do something, and we do it anyway. This is where the territory of the precepts is. Because every time you notice you're doing something like this, you can renew your commitment. This other phrase that I was told Suzuki Roshi used, it's, um, the precepts are or practice with the precepts is like a spring wind over a burned field. It's like when you when you notice how you're violating something in yourself, like a moral clarity or what what you think really is right. It's like, it's a kind of, um, it's kind of destructive force, like that fire that burns the field, right? And the, and the a renewal to the commitment of practicing with the precepts is a renewal like spring. There can be new growth. It's just, there can always be a new beginning. There's no, 
end to this practice. You don't have to accomplish anything. You just renew like spring does. Okay, the third level, which we don't have time to go into, the most important, we need to stop. It's like called practicing intimacy. But I'll just see if I can boil it down, and maybe in the discussion we can touch on it more. It's like I th- intimacy is the practice of removing division. It's like you all appear, you know, you all, you know, let's just say you appear within my field of awareness, and I appear in your field of awareness. And this situation that we appear within each other's minds that makes any sense to you it doesn't get more intimate than that even if I try not to be disturbed by you I can never get rid of being disturbed by other beings because they are part of my life just in this very I don't know obvious way that they appear So killing is like this idea of like, well, if I can get rid of this, then I will not be disturbed. So you could look at it a different way. The practice of intimacy is the willingness to be disturbed by others. To give up your resistance to being disturbed by others. It doesn't mean that you are going to stay in a present in the presence of someone who harms you, but you are fundamentally willing. Uh, uh, you already accept that there will be disturbance by so-called others. That life isn't going to just be without disturbance. If we could practice that, you know, the willingness to be disturbed without becoming foolish and letting ourselves be harmed. Harm meaning you know, lasting, that lasting dysfunction is inflicted on me, which I could also avoid by just stepping aside or separating from someone who isn't, who doesn't have, who doesn't care about my well-being. But I don't have to be, I don't have to be driven into violence against, you know, somebody. If I can practice this willingness to be disturbed. Anyway, this is obviously ethically difficult territory. We can count on all kinds of dilemmas to appear here. Thank you very much.